You know, this series generated is really generated about a year ago when I uh, was at a conference where I was asked to be the pastor to kind of host it. It, it, it was a conference. It was John Stott Ministries, now called Langham Partnership. And and I was able to do that last year, and they've invited me again in, a, in about a month or so to do it again. And one of the guys who's the key speaker, in fact, actually took over for John Stott is Chris. Um, I forget his right. Chris Wright is his name. And he wrote a book. And when we were there, it was a book that uh, he kind of gave out. And it was a book called The God I Don't Understand, which is the subtitle of this series. And so um, I thought, you know, I think it'd be a good thing to do something called Tough Questions and, and this whole idea of this God I Don't Understand. And, and so he shared that the reason for this book came about through some dining room conversations that he had with some very good friends. And they were sitting around having this conversation. And they were asking some very tough questions about the ways of God. And Chris at one point said, you know, people are often quick to say that's not fair when they or people close to them go through suffering that seems undeserved. And it's just a natural thing. I'm sure you felt that when you, you, you see suffering around you or yourself, it's, that's just not fair. He says, whereas I sometimes feel it is just as unfair that I have suffered so little in my own life. While in my family, I have siblings who have faced all kinds of stresses and illnesses and other agonies in theirs. And so in that sense, he's going, that's not fair. I've faced so little. They face so much. And as they continued their dining room conversation on the ways of God, Chris at one point said, I just don't understand why God does that with regard to something particular. And his friend's reaction was really a mixture of both surprise and a sense of relief. He said, I thought that you, Chris, being the Bible scholar that you are, this renowned international theologian, had all these things figured out and sorted out. And so his friend Gordon was kind of almost... Um, you know, as, as he thought about it, was just a little bit relieved. And, and he added, it's somehow comforting to think that you have problems just like the rest of us. I love Chris's response. He says to him, far from having them all sorted out, it seems to me that the older I get, the less I really think and really understand God. Which is not to say, said Chris, that I don't love and trust him. On the contrary, as life goes on and as I grow older, my love and my trust actually grows deeper. But my struggles with what God allows or doesn't allow grows deeper as well. And I love that humility. I think it's one of the reasons why the present Pope is so loved and in some ways adored is because he's so earthy. He's just this kind of guy who's down to earth, humble. And I don't have it all figured out. And I really, when we talk about tough questions, I want to talk about some earthy things that we're going to talk about with regard to it's, it requires a sense of really saying, I want to face these things. You see, there's this conception in, in, in the world that Christians have God all figured out. There's this idea that, that we understand God completely. And the opposite is really true. What we really trust in is this, that God has us all figured out. And that in his word, as we read his word, there are things in here that are very clear about who God is and about the way life is to be lived and the way reality is. But when you really kind of think about it, 
There are just some things in God's word. If you really get honest, as you grow older, as you begin to come to a place of wisdom, you just don't have God completely figured out. And so as I was thinking of this series, I just wanted to share with you, there are three different forms of what I call a a non-understanding that I live with that produce different emotional reactions within me. There's some things of non-understanding when it comes to things of God. And, And one of those things is there are things I don't understand about God that leave me feeling angry and grieved. I hope that brings a little bit of comfort to you. There are things because of the way they were or are still cause me a great sense of I just grieve, feel anger. In fact, there's there's books in the Old Testament called Lamentations. The idea of lament, the modern word means to protest where where Jeremiah and and, and Job and the Psalms and writers and others just they, they stand and go, God, this isn't right. And they're angry. I'm grieved and angry when I look at all the suffering and evil in the world. And I don't understand personally at times. I just don't understand why God allows it. Now, there are philosophical and theological answers, and we'll talk about some of those things in the weeks to come. But the reality is when, when, you, when you get down to it, the wrenching reality of actual suffering causes a struggle in the honest person's soul. I'm watching TV this last week, and I'm, I'm watching about, uh, as I look at inhumanity to man, they, I see the, the, the turmoil and all the stuff going on in Syria, and I see these kids who are underneath all this oppression, who are suffering and being crippled and being shot, and, all, and I, I just began to cry. And I was angry. So God, just why don't we stop? Why don't you stop that? There are some questions I don't understand about God that leave me disturbed and confused and actually almost kind of morally disturbed. It's troubling to read some of the things in the Old Testament, some of the violent acts of God that he commands. How do you reconcile the character of God with the destruction and annihilation of the Canaanites and and some of the things you read there? I really wrestle with that. How do you reconcile the character of God? I sometimes just read and and I'm confused at why God doesn't just say some things really clearly. And sometimes things are misunderstood for generations and why God didn't just come out and say slavery is always wrong. Or and certain things just made it really crystal clear. I'm really, you know, as we talk about this, this subject and the idea that here's things that can be confusing and and disturbing. uh, Next week, we're going to actually talk about God, the Old Testament and war. Um, Peter Kapsner is not me, thankfully. Um, I kid around it and give him the tough ones. And, you know, he's a theologian, so we'll let him deal with it. But anyway, there are some things about God that I don't understand that leave me in wonder and praise. I don't have it all figured out. I find it very interesting that Jesus in the Gospels doesn't set out a theory of the atonement. That's something that's being really discussed right now in theology. The whole idea of different theories of the atonement. And God in Jesus, when he comes, what he does, he he doesn't give a theory of the atonement. He just basically says, here's a meal celebrated, experience my love through the cross. And yet I also look at that very same act of God that just is in some ways inexplicable, this eternal, this infinite, this incomprehensible God. And my heart just with the the hymn writer, Charles Wesley, rejoices and exalts and says with this love and adoration. And can it be that I should gain an, an interest in the Savior's blood? It's amazing love. It just wells up inside. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And you can't say much to that except for wow. I'm just so grateful. 
And because God is eternal and infinite and incomprehensible, bigger than we can understand, at a certain point, I stand before God with those different reactions and feelings that I don't understand. And I still seek to understand his revelation. I still seek with all my heart to understand his word on reality. And I live with a sense of mystery. At times, I just live in a sense that this is in the mystery of God. And like Isaiah, who says in chapter 55, verse 8 and 9, repeating God's words, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And at times, I just have to submit myself to that and say, God, I trust your word. So with this brief explanation, this is a series introduction. We're going to have the introduction of the message in just a moment. With this brief introduction, I just kind of say, are you ready for some tough questions? I invite you to grapple it. I invite you to bring other people into it, whether you share the podcast or invite them to the service. Because the first question we're going to talk about this morning is one that theologians deal with often. It's called, in my mind, the way they would talk about it, is the mystery of original sin. We don't know why God permitted the fall, but we know by looking at all the evil and suffering in the world that something isn't right. Right? I mean, there's all kinds of explanations for this, but today what we're going to look at is the Bible's diagnosis and what it has to say about this whole idea of original sin. So I'm going to ask you and invite you, um, let's stand together as I pray. Get the blood flowing in your system. And yet, in a reverent heart before God, we just say, God, thank you for being who you are, beyond our comprehension. There are people here who might be struggling to find out what it means to actually live and follow Jesus. And there are people here who have lived and followed with Jesus for many, many years. And our desire, really, as a body, is to honor everybody in that place and journey, but to say, how can we, Jesus, how can you help us take our next step to know, follow, and become like you? Even in this, we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks. Well, a newspaper reporter came to a man named G.K. Chesterton, and he had a simple question that he wanted to ask him. It needed really a profound answer. And his question was, what's wrong with the world? As you see it, Chesterton, what's wrong with the world? And Chesterton was this famous English writer. He's no longer living today. He's a poet, a literary critic, um, all kinds of other things. He, he really came to faith later in his adult years. He, he came from a universalist church background, and, and as a result of that, which didn't give him much underpinnings, he actually dabbled in the occult for a while and then came to faith in Jesus. And Chesterton, as the guy was waiting, skipped over, I think he stood there for a few moments, all the expected answers, things like corrupt politicians, that's what's wrong with the world, Rivalries between warring nations. That's what's wrong with the world. The greed of the rich, the oppression of the powerful. He bypassed some of the what I call easy targets like crime or unjust laws or inadequate education. He could have pointed maybe to some of those things. But in the quietness of that moment, the guy asked him, Mr. Chesterton, what's wrong with the world? And with two simple words, he answered in response to him, looked in the eyes and said, I am. I am. The presence of evil, suffering, and pain in the world, in one sense, is just like Chesterton has to say, when you ask what's wrong with the world, I am. Chesterton's answer, though, has a theological underpinning 
that we're going to look at because it goes back to a much deeper biblical concept of original sin. Sin in its origin began with Adam in a garden and is replicated by each one of us. And so in the minutes that I have this morning, I I really want to share with you three things around this idea of why is the world the way it is? This whole idea of original sin, and that is, it just gives you an explanation of it and then share with you some evidence and then talk about the eradication of it, which the world and, and I think we all know dearly need. You see, the explanation of original sin begins really if you just turn to Genesis chapter 3. Hence, if you get the idea of sin's origin or its original with Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, I'm going to read from the message. It says, the serpent was clever, more clever than any wild animal God had made. He spoke to the woman. Do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only about the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, don't eat from it. Don't even touch it or you'll die, which is not fully what God said. The serpent told her, you won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything ranging all the way from good to evil. And when the woman saw the tree looked like good eating and realized what she would get out of it, she'd know everything. She she took and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband and they ate. Immediately, two of them did see what was really going on. They saw themselves as naked. They sewed fig leaves together as makeshift clothes for themselves. Sin entered the world. Now, here's the critical question. I think about this. The theologians ask, why would two people placed in a perfect environment sin? Ever thought about that? I mean, if you had everything you needed, everything you wanted, what would tempt you to do what you know is wrong? What would you do? Why? I mean, think of it this way. After stuffing yourself full to the point of sickness on Thanksgiving Day, how many of you are tempted to eat another piece of pie? And yet you do. It makes no sense. I remember my seminary theology series at at, at TEDS. We were going through all these different studies. You have studies, soteriology, ecclesiology, eschatology, all these ologies. One of them in the one quarter that I was studying was called sin and salvation. It's all about sin and the whole aspect of Christ's salvation. And and in that quarter, we were to read this 900-page book, just one of a bunch of books, a 900-page book by a guy named Louis Burkauer, very Great theologian. And and early on, he posed a question in the sin section of the whole course. Why would Adam and Eve choose to sin? And I read on for another 40 pages going on and on. And finally, we get to the answer, the real answer he asked for the question. And he just says, we don't know. He could have told me that a lot of it. It makes no sense is what he says. That's basically his answer. His point is this, that the Bible doesn't give the why. When we talk about tough questions and people always want to know the why the Bible doesn't give the why a lot of times, but it merely gives the what. In a similar way, when you read the Bible and you think about it, the beginning of the Bible doesn't explain the why of creation. It just begins and says, in the beginning, what? God created. That's what happened. There's a theologian, Marguerite Schuster. She says, how could sin invade the world that God made good? To this great question, the Bible gives no theoretical answer. It only narrates how it came to be. So here's the deal. There's all kinds of explanations for why the world is the way it is, but the Bible explains it simply and says, here it is. It narrates it. 
It's sin. Original sin. That happened with Adam and Eve and is replicated in every person in this room and every person throughout history. Romans 5.12. There's a verse where as Paul is writing, he's explaining all this in this book of Romans. He says, sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death came through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. That's just the Bible's explanation. I don't know, but when I, for many years, as I would struggle with it, I go, that just doesn't seem fair, does it? It just doesn't seem right. Adam does this and we get this. You ever felt that way? People will tell you that. That just doesn't seem fair. Well, you know, have you ever been in a situation where you've seen on TV or you've been in a hospital or maybe you've been held in your arms? A child that's been crippled, that is, that is, is in a place paralyzed or, or has mental difficulties and, and the result of this baby just having been born is the result of the lifestyle of some parents who maybe had drugs or were in STDs or some other thing that, that their choices made an implicate, you know, and you look at it and you go as you hold and watch this baby, you say, that's not fair, right? But it's true. That's what the Bible says, but it's true. This is just reality. It's what the word of God begins to tell us right from the beginning. It's true. The Bible merely points out an answer for why the world is the way it is. There's all kinds of explanations. I remember when I was studying in college, we were studying these things about the nature of man. And one one philosopher, Rousseau, began to start to popularize the idea that really we're just a bunch of blank slates. Tabula rasa is what the idea is. That in some sense, when you're born, you're born with this blank slate. It goes all the way back to Rome where they had these wax kind of slates where you would make a mark on it. And his whole point was this. The reason we are the way we are, the reason there is so much corruption, there's so much greed, there's so much evil in the world today is because somehow from the outside, some kind of environment, how you're nurtured creates the way you are. It's not by nature. The Word of God is much more complex than that. The Word of God is so much more earthy than that. The Word of God comes back and says, no, it's a matter of nature and also what's happened as you've been nurtured. It gives gives a much deeper explanation. And the Bible states that original with Adam and Eve, this sin is the reason the way the world is the way it is. But now I want to get really personal for a moment, okay? I don't want to just talk about it out here. I want to talk about it in here. I want to talk about it in you. Because the Bible agrees with Chester's in the answer when he says, why is the world the way it is? Why are you the way it is? And he says, I am. It's because of me. In each of us, sin explains why we do what we do. Paul, who was one of the greatest theologians, one of the main writers of the New Testament, agrees with Chesterton. I don't know if he always did, but he do know that when he had an encounter with Jesus Christ and the Damascus Road experience, he knew at that point his own heart. And at that point, he realized there was something wrong with him and it was his sin. Listen to these words in Romans 7, 15 through 20. It is the words that I'm going to read in a few moments are actually the words that in a very low point in my life, when I felt powerless around sin, when I, I couldn't understand, when I didn't understand why I did what I was doing, and I didn't want to really do it, and I remember just, it was, it was these words that I'm going to read in a few moments were a spiritual awakening to me. It was really the beginning of opening my eyes in the Spirit, beginning to help me to see my own need for Jesus. And I remember as I read this, I, I remember I was reading it going, I could have written this. Paul basically says, 
In Romans chapter 7, verse 15, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And it is, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin, catch a sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my flesh, my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Ever felt that struggle? Ever wonder, why do I do what I do? More than just why is the world the way it is, but why do I do what I do? He says, now I do what I do not want to do. It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin doing it, living in the sense, in me, that does it. Here's something Paul learned, and I think many people who begin to start to say, why am I who I am, and how do I actually move to a place where my life could be different, where I don't hurt people, I don't do the things that I, I don't, is the word called sin, disrupt and bring death to relationships, create um, a cutting off. Here's something that Paul learned. And, and what, was learning, what I was beginning to learn is you can't solve a problem until you know what it is. You ever thought about that that way? And you may be trying to solve a problem that you just don't even know. You can't solve a problem until you know what it is. A few weeks ago, our house shook like it had been hit by a bomb. I, I'm serious, from the bottom up. And, 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 and we knew what had happened, but it had never happened to this extent. This happened once before, and when we went downstairs, we finally tracked down what had caused this rumbling throughout the house. This little water softener, the little plastic pipe was out of the drain, and water was everywhere. So we knew at that point that the rumbling came from this water softener. So it happens again. And my lovely wife, who is just, you know, wonderful, says, Kevin, would you go down and check it out? Pure, like, you know, any loving husband will do. I have no idea what I'm doing, but yeah, I'll go check it out. So I went downstairs and I looked at this water softener. I looked at it for a little bit. There's a little plastic thing. I took it off, looked at that. There's a little dial that spun. I looked at that, put it back. And then I saw the little refresh kind of thing, recycle button. I hit that. Kind of a cool thing to do. Anyway, I hit that. And then I stared at it. And I went back upstairs. Did I fix the water softener? No way. I had no idea what was causing the problem. You see, it's impossible to solve a problem until you know what's causing it. It was really important for me, the spiritual awakening, to begin to understand what was causing the problem. You may be this morning in a place where you're beginning to start saying, what is causing this problem? Now, here's my point. I'm not saying this from a position of being superior at all. I'm saying it with you. Many of you have been trying for a long time to solve a problem. They've been trying to solve you. You've read books, you've taken classes, you've done counseling, you're, you're trying to, you, you may have spent even good money in the process of solving you. You've watched Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, Dr. anybody that will give you a solution to it, right? And then you've given up and you watch like Housewives of New York because you know they look a lot worse than you. You may have had a spouse or a friend, or you may even be in a work situation where an employee, employer is saying to you, fix you, or don't plan on coming back. There, you, it may be that place. And the problem may be that you do not know what the problem may be, if that makes sense. 
And this is where the Bible comes in. The Bible's so cool, so earthy, so, so what I call um, to the heart of matters and says, here's the problem. It's sin. And like Paul and many others have come to realize, it is sin living in you. And you are powerless to that sin that you can't control. And so Jesus, and throughout the Bible, it says, that which had its origin in Adam explains today why you do what you do and explains why you can't do what you want to do. Original sin is the idea that every one of us is born a sinner and will manifest that sinfulness in our personal life. It's not a regard to nurture. It's within your nature. Sin pervades everything. It brings death. You've experienced that in your life. I've experienced it. I have messed up more things because of my own selfishness, my own sinfulness. Theologians call this total depravity, which sounds horrific. But it merely means this, that sin pervades everything. It works from the heart, from the inside out. For out of the overflow of your mouth, uh, your heart, your mouth speaks. Anybody, everybody here, can, can you control all your words? Anybody been perfect in your words? Well, it becomes from a place called your heart, and in your heart dwells sin. One theologian put it this way, the doctrine of original sin is the only Christian doctrine that can be empirically verified. I like that. There's evidence all over. If that's the explanation of what is going on with you and with the world, then the evidence is all around us. I don't really need to say a whole lot about this, but I'll just give a couple examples. And one is just a little child. You ever, you know, a little baby. You see this baby, and you maybe have raised this baby. You're a parent, you're a grandparent. Maybe you've babysat for this kid. Maybe you're a nanny for this kid. But at some point, at a certain point, you begin to go, what got into this child? What happened to this child? What got into it? I remember one time my mom, I was in fourth grade, and it's just as clear as a bell. She, she grabbed me and she said, Kevin, what, what's gotten into you? You used to be such a sweet child. Well, the Bible knows sin. That's what's gotten into you. And then there's another way you can look at it. You know, it's just in this sense, um, with regard to rules. Anybody ever keep your, even your own rules? Anybody here kept all your own rules? Paul writes this in, in chapter 7, verse 18 and 19, Romans, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. I can't even follow my own rules. I remember one time my, my wife, and she's just so, she's, a, she's the most dependable, uh, loyal, consistent, reliable, steady, kind of the follow the rule person. She actually reads directions before she puts something together. Anybody like that here? Well, we were playing Rook with some families. We, it was kind of a two-year thing we were doing, and it was early on we had partners, and we stuck with these partners. And my wife is gracious and loving. She's patient. I, did I mention that? She's patient, really patient, too. She chose the 10, 10 and 11-year-olds. She was the youngest one, and obviously was learning how to play, and she was so patient and good about it. And he had this problem, basically, that he, he would always kind of bid higher than he had the ability to do so. You know what I mean? And, and so he would go. And so finally she sat down with him and said, she made a rule with him. We won't, we won't bid higher than this. So we're playing this game. And all of a sudden she states her bid. And to her surprise and everyone else, she broke out, oh, I broke my own rule. And I thought to myself, wow. I'll keep my, that one down. No. <clears throat> no. <laughs> How many of you have made some commitments in January? How many have broke those commitments? 
None of us do that well. It's just the evidence is there's something in us, there's sin in us. We can't even live up with our own rules, let alone the standard of God, which says that you have to be perfect if you're going to live in the presence of God. Sin every time will cause that to go south. Sin corrupts, and like they say about absolute power, it corrupts absolutely. It is total depravity. It comes from the very center of our being and taints everything. You see, the profound nature of sin is evidenced in all of us, even if you think it's inconsequential. You kind of go, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. Which if you read Genesis, so what's the big deal? It's a bite from fruit. Rather than understanding disobedience causes all kinds of consequences. So what's so big about the fact that maybe I gossip once in a while? Or what's so big about the fact that maybe I have a little bit of a temper? Or what's what's the big deal about it if I just lust a little bit? What's the big deal if I have some of these things in me? The big deal is the trajectory, if it's in your heart, is set. Even if it's the slightest little bit. And the Word of God tells us death is the end. Even if you think it's just a little bit off. C.S. Lewis, I love what, the way he writes it, because there is this, this sense that the word of God says sin causes death. Death leads us to hell. It leads us to being cut off not only from God, but from one another. People who always go, I'm going to hell with all my buddies. Baloney, you're alone. C.S. Lewis writes, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. It's kind of an interesting thing. The moment I began to start seeing spiritually became awakened to my sin was the day I began to take responsibility before God with regard to that. And you may be here today and you may be having this awakening going, you know what, there's something and I got to get real about it. So he's, he makes this little statement. And then he says this. Perhaps my temper or jealousy are getting worse. Just maybe a little bit. The increase in 70 years will hardly be noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing, which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. That's what's wrong with the world. That's what's wrong with me. You may be just figuring out that's also maybe what's wrong with you. And so if this explains why it is the way it is and and it actually gives evidence, and you see it in your own life, then how do you eradicate this stuff? How do you get rid of the cancer of the sin in your heart? Paul makes an interesting statement. If you read verses 17 and 20 of Romans 7, he twice makes this statement, it is sin living in me. And what I want you to notice is that most of us, we usually concentrate on the verb sinning, the act of sin. I stole something from the cookie jar. And we get caught up on that. And we think if we could just deal with that, then and most even believers live this way, not understanding this, that if I can just stop it. And I think it's interesting is, is the word he gives is sin is a noun. He's talking about a condition. He's talking about a state of the heart. He's talking about your heart is diseased and it needs a transplant. If it was merely just sinning that you needed to stop, all we would need to do from Sunday to Sunday is come in here, sing some songs, greet one another, and then I would just get up and say and look at you, go to stop it. And you'd all go, that's great news. And we'll go home and you start over again. And, and really taking notes would be so simple. You just need a three by five card. And you just says, stop doing this, start doing that. 
But we all know that we can't do that. We all know that 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 one word's going to come out or that one look's going to come out or we just know that a little bit of greed's going to be. We can't just stop it. Why can't you stop it? Because there's a diseased heart that needs to be changed. God is one who goes to the root and he says the root of what's wrong with you and what's wrong in this world is sin and it's in your heart. And the only way that it can be taken care of is it needs to be eradicated. So what Paul calls us to is he's saying it's not about sinning, but it's about sin, the condition of sin. And what the Bible is concerned about is not just acts of sin, but the state of sin in our heart, the disease of sin that has polluted our heart. And so what Paul goes on to say, if you continue to read Romans seven twenty five, remember when I was reading this. And I was, I was reading this thing and I'm just looking for the solution. And Paul goes on. But what a wretched person that I am who will rescue me from this body of death. And he just says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is in one sense that simple. Jesus came to this earth Because he wanted to change the trajectory of this earth in the sin that it's been bound in. He wants to change it in individual lives. And what he does is this. He comes, he comes to a cross and on that cross, he says all your sin that's in your heart, all the acts of sin that you've done, that you do, that you will do, I will forgive you forever. The penalty of the punishment of hell, I'll change the trajectory. And here's how he does it. He says, you ask me the principle of life. In fact, if you read John, the gospel, it talks about life. If you read through Romans, he talks about life, the noun life. He will put life into your heart, the spirit of God. If you open your heart to him, he'll forgive you for your sins. But here's what's so interesting. Paul is not talking about someday out there. Do this so that someday you'll be saved. He's saying, but I want to save you now. I want to change your relationships now. I want to change the person you are now. I want to change the character of who you are so the environment around you that Paul was, that Joel was talking about will change and the way it happens is Jesus comes in and you invite him in and he, he eradicates he takes out that sinful heart and he gives you a new heart and in that new heart it begins to pump life so that the life the noun becomes a verb of living and you know how many here if you've had this life come in your heart stop sinning What you begin to recognize is how often you do. But what you also recognize in the same way that you came to life, you come to him again and say, Jesus, I now pray that your life begins to flow through me. And no longer am I trying to live my life performing and doing and trying harder enough. And it's not a stop this, do that kind of thing. It rules that I try to please you. I now invite your law of love to rule my heart. And he says, guess what? If that's where your heart is, I will give it to you as a gift of grace. I was really bummed about stopping this last series. And Tuesday or Wednesday this week, I had this kind of crisis of faith going, Oh, no, I don't know about this next one. And I'm so now excited about this next series here. I don't know where you're at. I know as I'm speaking and I look out, there are people who are going, I'm ready. God, I want you now. I want Jesus, you to come to the center of my life. I'm going to ask the worship team if they'd come and and prepare to sing in a moment. But I want to read this to you because it's really important. You may have said, I was was wondering as I was doing this series of reading some stuff, why is it that the tree is in the center of the garden? What was that all about? 
And then I read one of these theologians who quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his profound book, Creation and Fall, asked why the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the forbidden fruit, should be placed right in the center of the Garden of Eden. Bonhoeffer writes, the reason, he concludes, is that this is where God belongs in our life. And if you want God in the center of your life to forgive you of your sins, to begin to start giving you life now that begins to be translated in living, as they're singing this song, would you just open your heart and begin to start saying, God, um, you can just pray even through this song. Thank you for your love. Thank you. Love me this much. I recognize my struggle. I see my sin. I'm beginning to understand this. I ask you to forgive me. I repent of that. And I invite you, I ask you, Spirit of God, Jesus, this gift you give me, put your spirit in my life that I might now begin to live an empowered life for you.